economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Well, let's open in prayer. Lord, none of this is a surprise to you. Uh, you, you invented this eons ago, and we think we're so bright for stumbling on it now. But Lord, there's a, there's a purpose, and you know what the purpose is. Um, Lord, we pray that you'd be with us this evening and help us to understand this, uh, Lord. Whether we whether we're scared off or whether we're intrigued, Lord, help us to see it through your eyes. Um, maybe as a tool that can be used for your kingdom. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we started Tuesday night and shut it down to talk about Bitcoin. Finally, we talked about money and and uh, the rocks on the South Pacific Island that were worth money and until somebody started importing rocks. And uh and, and how cattle was worth a lot of money, and but you could grow cattle and and uh, the depreciation and and um, so. T- but tonight we're going to talk about digital currency, right? Bitcoin, how it all works. Uh, <laughs> I've got in my mind this gigantic earth mover, you know, like a coal mine, an open pit coal mine digging, and and I, and I've been wondering how in the world. What kind of what kind of mining machinery do they have to have to mine for Bitcoin, and and how do they know when they find it? Because it's because I guess it's digital. You know, I see this little this little gold looking coins with a B on it, and I'm thinking is you know maybe they're buried. I know they're not buried under there. So we're gonna we're gonna get to understanding what blockchain and Bitcoin and 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 why. So you guys take it away, and thank you. Well, thank you for having us. Um, so maybe we should explain uh, kind of uh, an uh, overview of how the Bitcoin network works. And to do that, we should explain what why we would want electronic cash and the way an electronic cash system must work. So it's the nature of um, anything digital that it can be copied a bunch of different times. If you send somebody a photo, they can um, copy that photo and send it to somebody else. So I've kind of got digital cash already, right? I mean, I log on to my bank to see how much is in my account. I never see the money. I send checks that I never sign. I put a piece of plastic, rub a piece of plastic over a little receiver to buy stuff. And it shows up online that I bought something. And then money comes out of my account at the bank. And it never goes into my wallet. Exactly. And so what your bank does in this case is your bank has a kind of spreadsheet. Um, And in one entry, it has your account and it has the amount of money that you have in your account. And, you know, if I'm moving money from my checking account to my savings account, or if I'm sending you money, um, then I'm put, you know, when I press send or send on this transaction, my bank makes sure that for every dollar that uh, enters your account, $1 also gets taken out of my account. 
Um, but it's not like they're actually physically moving dollar bills around at the bank, right? They're just making sure that for every digit your account goes up, my account goes down. And so this is a centralized um, version of digital cash, right? Um, the reason we trust our banks to do this is because we think our banks have an incentive to make sure that they're not adding um, more dollars to my account than they are taking away from your account. Um, so does that make sense? This, I mean, we should be familiar with this on, uh, this is how our banks individually work. It gets more complicated when we're sending from you know, one bank to another bank. Um, there's all kinds of incentives that might come into play where we wanna make sure that um, actually the, uh, the value that leaves one account goes to another account. And if, if you actually try to transfer large sums of uh, money from one bank across the world to another bank, you usually have to pay a pretty decent fee on that. And it's because there are so many conflicts of interest and, uh, and there are so many things that can go wrong. Um, each bank has to uh, be pretty risk averse about this. And so they have to take uh, a series of precautions to make sure that um, that no, no money gets kind of double spent or double counted. Um, so this, uh, we've, been, we've been doing this for a while, um, but this kind of purchase lacks the kind of thing that we actually look for when, or it lacks some of the features that a regular cash exchange in real life has. Um, when I exchange cash with somebody in real life, um, I don't have to get permission from a third party. There's no third party that's saying, uh, you know, okay, we're going to make sure that, you know, um, that, uh, you know, the, the right amount of dollars uh, changes hands here. And in the same sense that your bank is making sure that the right amount of dollars changes hands, your bank can also stop you from uh, transferring uh, money from one account to, to another account, right? It's one of the benefits of cash that um, the only people involved are the two people in the transaction. So um, if, if we wanted a version of digital cash, we would want something like a giant uh, ledger with, um, with little slots for everybody. Um, now, we run into a problem immediately because if uh, we have a giant ledger with everybody's name on it, um, we need to be able to make sure that uh, that this ledger is being updated honestly, so that for every dollar that leaves my account and goes to your uh, goes to your account, there's a deduction from my account and an addition to your account. So uh, the typical way, again, that this has been solved is by this trusted third party who maintains this ledger. Um, but again, if you have a third party, that third party can stop transactions. Um, and uh, we've also seen that it seems like whenever we grant this third party uh, the ability to maintain these kinds of ledgers, they're usually adding money to their account. Um, and this is a, a method of, of inflation, right? And so um, if we want one ledger for everybody, one thing that we might want to do is let anybody edit the ledger. But if anybody can edit the ledger, then uh, I'll just be increasing the number in, in my account all the time, right? Um, so we want to make sure that uh, the only people who edit the leg ledger edit it in an honest way. And this was actually the develop the uh, invention of the blockchain. Um, so some people talk about like blockchain technology. It is this that people mean when they talk about the blockchain. 
So a blockchain is a is a series of ledgers where um, there are blocks, and blocks are groups of transactions. So there's a ledger before a block and a ledger after a block. And a block is the amount of transactions that uh, um, deduct from one account and add to another account. So and it's the, the it's way the, it's the it's the common the, the totality of all the trading, buying and selling that's happened in a given period of time, that's a block. Exactly. And in Bitcoin and somehow blocks, or other, somehow there's got to figure out what I've got left after I've spent some money and what you've got in your account. And it's, it's, it's like my bank statement. Yes, it's like a combined bank statement for everybody. Mm -hmm. um, and in Bitcoin, it, those happen every 10 minutes. Um, and uh, it's a very complicated math problem to figure out uh, which money goes where in every transaction. Um, so uh, the way the Bitcoin uh, blockchain is set up is that there are very difficult math problems that are uh, that um, if a computer solves that math problem, then it automatically solves that block and commits that uh, that block of transactions to the blockchain. And though these problems are very, very hard to solve, they take ex the fastest computers we have around 10 minutes to solve, um, they are trivially easy to verify. So you could verify that any block um, solution is correct on your own home computer um, extremely quickly. So this is uh, done through what's called hashing. Hashes are difficult to solve, but easy to verify. And what this means is that um, even though it's very, very difficult to make a change to the ledger, right? It takes a very strong computer, uh, a really decent amount of processing power to change it. Once that change has been done correctly, it's trivially easy for all the other computers on the network to verify that um, that change was done honestly. Does that make sense? How many transactions are there in, in trained in each block? Is that is that a certain amount of transactions or just a certain amount of time or? It is a certain amount of transactions. I can't remember off the top of my head. It's, it's in the thousands. Um, so. And it might. Um, will those blocks get bigger as the transaction number of transactions increase or will they just get more blocks? Uh, no, the right now it's, I doubt that the block size will increase. Um, so, um, blocks are one, um, they're not denominated in number of transactions, but in the amount of data, uh, per block. Um, so, um, what tends to happen is sometimes when the Bitcoin network is very, very busy, um, in addition to, uh, um, uh, you can actually pay an amount of Bitcoin to make sure that your transaction gets included in the next block. Um, th and this is usually a pretty trivially small amount of Bitcoin. Um, but it has happened in the past that when the network was extremely busy, sometimes transaction fees go up. And so sometimes transaction fees are higher. Um, so um, in Supply the future, yes. Uh, 
And we, we've mentioned, I think, in the last podcast, um, so maybe just buttonhole this for a second. And I want to explain how miners work, and then we can talk about uh, what might happen if the blocks get full. Um, so since miners are each, and uh, each miner or group of miners, they, they work adversarially, right? They're each trying to independently verify the next block. And each can uh, trivially determine that the last block was completed honestly. But if you are a miner and, you're, um, and you actually solve that block, you get a reward in the form of, I think right now it's like 6.25 Bitcoin, or it might've actually recently halved, I can't remember. Um, but this is, this is interesting and it's important because um, this was a way for the Bitcoin network to kind of pay for itself. So the Bitcoin network pays miners to always be checking it and making sure that it is uh, settling itself honestly. So if, you're, if you are the miner who successfully solves one of the blocks, um, then you get what's called the block reward for that block. So right now that's this is 6.25 Bitcoin and all of the um, transaction fees that were in that block. So Justin, are all, are all of the um, other computers on the decentralized network then verifying that that was the correct solution? Is that what you're saying? It's easy to verify. That's the thousands of computers saying, yep, you got the right answer. And then the block reward goes to the miner that actually solved it. Yes. And then that new spreadsheet gets shot, uh, sent out to everybody on the network. So everybody then has a copy of the new spreadsheet and, and the next competition begins. That's what makes the chain is it's a block connected by a final spreadsheet to another block that's connected by a final spreadsheet and an opening spreadsheet, which matches to the next block. block exactly. Chain. Yep. Um, are the miners making a lot of money? Uh, it's, it's possible to make money mining. It's also, uh, it, it depends on the Bitcoin price, right? Because mining becomes more profitable when Bitcoin's price is peaking and it becomes less profitable when Bitcoin's price is uh, in the seller because the block reward is just denominated in Bitcoin, not in dollar amounts of Bitcoin. So um, I so might want to get the, get, I, I, if I've got lots of capital, I might want to get the Bitcoin reward and just hang on to it. Uh, yes. Um, just pay I, the electricity bill and hang on to the Bitcoin. Yeah, exactly. Uh, this is what a lot of miners, I think, end up doing. There's um, there's a metric that, like, you know, miners are in trouble when the miners are actually selling their Bitcoin, right? Um, so it's I I always personally think that it's uh, it's actually much easier to just buy Bitcoin than buy mining equipment. Uh, although I do know people who, you know, if you're very technically savvy um, and you have a good source of low cost energy, um, then mining makes sense. But uh, mining is going to be um, uh, differentially profitable um, depending on, you know, your cost of electricity. So there's there's places where um, you know, geothermal energy is currently just going to waste. Um, and this is, they've actually set up Bitcoin miners in these places to start to take advantage of that electricity and try to convert that electricity into wealth. Um, similarly, I don't know if you know about like flaring and oil fields, but um, they have now set up specially designed Bitcoin miners to just run uh, so that there aren't um, 
to use up that fuel so that uh, no flaring occurs anymore. Um, so it's uh, sometimes you hear the the claim that Bitcoin mining is really um, energy, uh, it's a waste of energy. Um, and we can address that uh, objection in a couple minutes if you want. But one of the things to keep in mind is also that Bitcoin is uh, mining has found a way to use energy in places that it uh, otherwise wouldn't be profitable to use energy. So if I can get geothermal energy in Iceland, maybe it's not profitable to transmit it. But if I can uh, turn that geothermal energy into Bitcoin via mining, it's uh, it's trivially easy to transmit the Bitcoin. So it makes um, it makes it possible to kind of turn that energy into into wealth and transfer it. I might add that so, college kids have found it useful to in dorm rooms. They found low cost energy and had to be kind of uh, told that they can't do that. <laughs> yeah. So one thing that I think is important to keep in mind here is like when we were talking about the monetary systems in the first uh, discussion, we noted that there always seemed to be this structure of incentives such that the person who was doing the the minting of the coin always had an incentive to debase the currency or print it for themselves. Um, and the thing about Bitcoin that I find most impressive is that I think its structure of incentives is set up such that it's it doesn't make sense for uh, even people like miners um, to try to cheat the system. Um, so one way you could, if like theoretically, a group of miners could conduct what's called like a 51% attack, where uh, since the Bitcoin network is settled by consensus after every block, if enough nodes in the network decided, hey, let's just uh, let's just say that Justin's um, uh, cell should get filled up with more money, even though nobody sent him it. Um, so technically, 51% of the miners could agree and insert, you know, a, a double spending um, into one of those ledgers, right? But the, uh, the interesting thing is once that happens and once uh, a portion of the people find out about it, Bitcoin actually loses its value almost immediately because what gives Bitcoin its value is the idea that it is uh, currently like bulletproof and uninflatable. So as soon as it becomes inflatable, it becomes worthless. And that removes the incentive to um, conduct one of these 51% attacks because it turns out that it can't get you rich. It will just get you currency that is instantly worthless um, if, you tried, uh, if you tried to do that kind of thing. What's a node? A, a node um, is one of the computers that is getting those updated spreadsheets after every block. Okay, Does so every, every, every miner would have to have a node. Every miner is a node, but not all nodes are miners. Um, so you can run a node on your own computer. Um, and that just means you're getting all those spreadsheets, uh, but you're not trying to solve. You're not wasting your, com your computing power to try to solve any of these blocks because you know that the, that the uh, ASIC computers are going to um, get it faster than you anyway. Um, so I'm a counterfeiter. How, how do I counterfeit Bitcoin? I mean, if you, you know, it, it, with, with $100 bills and I just put them on my my very sophisticated desktop printer and make some print you know, copies of them, double sided and go try to pass them off. How do, how do I, uh, if you're with the Treasury, that, that, that doesn't happen. 
how, how do I um, uh, fake or uh, counterfeit Bitcoin? Um, it's almost impossible to do. So remember, we said that it's actually really hard to um, to solve a block, and solving a block is changing the ledger. But it's trivially easy for any other node to see whether or not that block has been solved uh, has been um, conducted honestly. So it would cost you a lot of money to try to put a fake block into the next um, ledger, and anybody around there would. Uh, any of the other nodes can trivially easy see, hey, this uh, this miner tried to cheat, right? Um, so since it's trivially easy um, to detect and very, very expensive to try to conduct, um, it doesn't really make sense to try to do it. Um, and you'll, you'll be discovered almost immediately. Every other node will just reject the block that you tried to submit. Um, so um, that's why- So you'll never get to the 51%. So you'll you'll you're, you'll never be successful in counterfeiting. A fifty-one percent attack won't occur. Yeah, and in fact, there sometimes people um, they say things like, "Well, these these mine miners are really expensive. So instead of running my miner independently, I'm going to get a group of miners together and we'll pool our resources and then uh, share the um, the results if we get them." And there have been mining pools that actually got up to uh, to close to fifty percent, um, and uh, instead of conducting a 51% attack, um, these pools actually voluntarily disbanded, right? So they said, oh, hold on, let's break up into smaller pools uh, because the miners, um, they're getting rewarded in the Bitcoin currency. They don't want even the, the whiff of um, uh, illegitimacy around uh, Bitcoin. So the miners have an incentive since they're being paid in Bitcoin to keep Bitcoin as honest as possible. Um, so what's, uh, what this is getting at is like, this is a system set up such that um, everyone's incentives are structured to keep this money very, very hard and uninflatable. Justin, would you transactions say, honest. Justin, would you say that um, the nodes that are just individual computers that do this simple trivial verification process, would you say that there's thousands of nodes or millions of individual computers that do this? Uh, thousands. Um, thousands of nodes. All across the world. Uh, yeah, all over the world. And note that um, like to actually destroy Bitcoin, you would have to destroy every single one of these nodes, right? Because mm -hmm. every single one of these nodes has the entire history of the, of the blockchain, right? That's what a node is. It's, um, it's a history of the blockchain. That's a lot of data storage. It's a lot of data storage. Um, this is another reason why um, I think that uh, I don't, it was popular for a while to say, well, the blockchain technology is very interesting, but it, you know, Bitcoin is dumb. Or, and this was the phrase, blockchain, not Bitcoin. Um, and I think that actually has it almost exactly wrong. Like uh, when you say that's a lot of data storage, it is a lot of data storage and it's a lot of data uh, duplication. And it's a lot of um, data storage to spend on uh, on a communal spreadsheet. And you might think like that um, for this spreadsheet to be worth it, it better be doing something very important. And I think that money and keeping track of, uh, of money is one of the few things that it makes sense to use a blockchain for given how much uh, duplication goes on. We've seen in the, in the past section that um, it's, a, it's a disaster when um, the control of the money um, 
is uh, subverted. And when money goes bad, society goes very, very bad. So I think uh, having a stable, secure, and hard money is one of the few things that it makes sense to use a blockchain for. So how do I get my name on one of these ledgers? My name, address, social security number, and, and all the other pertinent information so people can put money in my account. Um, a, a number of different ways. One, uh, one way is you could just go, um, there are a bunch of websites where you could just um, set up a Bitcoin account and get um, an address and a private key. Um, you can also do this on something like Coinbase um, or these uh, exchanges, right? And Coinbase is probably the most popular one in the United States where you can uh, sign up for an account. They will take some of your information because Coinbase now operates under uh, the Know Your Customer and Anti-Money Laundering laws, KYC um, AML laws. Um, and then uh, you can exchange uh, US dollars for Bitcoin and then Bitcoin get put into your Coinbase account. Now, having your uh, Bitcoin on a Coinbase account is a lot like uh, Coinbase just holding onto your Bitcoin for you. Um, what you would want to do- I think I do, want them holding my money. Yeah, uh, Coinbase- I have to trust uh, that's, a, that's that third party back in the middle, isn't it? Yes, it is a third party. And, um, you know, this just happened to FTX. It's happened to a number of exchanges. Uh, have They have failed. So it's always better to, if you have to get your Bitcoin on an exchange, you get your Bitcoin off that exchange and into what we call uh, usually cold storage. So there are a couple of different um, companies that provide what's called cold storage um, devices or, or hardware wallets. Trezor is one, T-R-E-Z-O-R. Um, Ledger is one, L-E-D-G-E-R, and uh, CoinKite is one. And these are devices that are smaller than a phone. Usually they look like they're the size of a Tic Tac box or a large USB dongle. Um, and what they really are, though, is single purpose computers, and they store your private key um, so that uh, your private key never actually touches uh, uh, the internet. Um, it is only used to sign uh, Bitcoin transactions. And then if you have, if you transfer your Bitcoin from one of these exchanges to the address that you have the private key for on your um, cold storage device, um, then it is, uh, you know, as much your property as anything could be. And you can write down a passphrase. Um, and um, so... I've actually had uh, one of these cold storage uh, devices. I've, I've had one um, uh, stop working and break, and it's always uh, a little uh, interesting then. Because, uh, but uh, since I've written down my 24-word seed phrase, I can just buy another um, uh, one of those devices, or I could even just go online or do it on a. Um, on any wallet online if I wanted to and then put the seed, seed phrase there. But it immediately uh, gets me access to my um, space in you know, the communal ledger. So the, um, well, when I ask the, you, the how do I get right my, there. When I ask you, how do I get my name on one of these ledgers? What I was hoping you would say is you can't. You're just a number. It's totally oh. anonymous. Nobody, I mean, recently we've heard of major banks who decided that we don't like your politics. Or we don't like your religion. 
And so they've cut off. They, they've just said, either here's your money. Uh, we don't want to do business with you or we're going to hold your money and we don't want to do business with you. Um, beyond that, the, well, recently, okay. Bank of America, I understand, gave to the U.S. government a list of everybody who did ATM or credit card transactions through Bank of America in Washington, D.C. on January 6th. So if you were in town and you were a customer of Bank of America and you used their card, the government got the information from the bank. I, I can see a time. I mean, at this point, our government is completely trustworthy, and I don't mind them no having total access to my finances. But I can see a time when perhaps a nonprofit or a person would rather not have everybody seeing what, what they've got. Tell me how Bitcoin protects me in that regard. Well, when I just talked about sending your money from the exchange to your Bitcoin address on your hardware wallet, that is just a number, right? Um, and so uh, there is no uh, there is no identification of you on the Bitcoin network. Um, it's just it's just a number. It's like an email address, but just a very very long number instead. Um, so that's it. Uh, and then. Um, Suppose you were worried further. You said, well, I know that uh, Coinbase knows that I sent this money to this address, right? Um, so maybe Co Coinbase could provide the, uh, the feds with information about where that uh, Bitcoin went. Um, but there are a bunch of services in Bitcoin that allow you to uh, put uh, transfer money. Um, uh, they're called coin mixers. Um, and uh, some of these have been recently deemed illegal, but um, I, and I would never recommend anybody do anything illegal, but uh, they are software, so they can be utilized whether or not they're legal. Um, and what, what coin mixers do is they take a bunch of uh, coins from different Bitcoin accounts, mix them together, and then give everyone the same amount of coins back, but completely different coins. So they mix them all together. And then that becomes actually... Um, uh, pretty statistically impossible to even trace what money went where on the network. Because remember, uh, a Bitcoin is, isn't something that actually moves from one account to another. What happens is after, and in every ledger update, one digit gets added. If one gets subtracted from one number, one gets added to um, uh, an account in the other one. And, and all that matters is that um, the total number of digits on the ledger stay the same between blocks plus the reward, right? So it's not transparent to, if it's done right, it's not transparent to anybody who's sending the money or who's receiving the money or what the, what, what the exchange is all about. If I wanted to send money to a missionary that's working in a closed country and I don't want to, I, I don't want to give away who he is or where he is, I mean, I can, I can see kingdom uses for this um and maybe i'm thinking too much of you've been left behind in the whole book series but um it, it's interesting to think about plus it doesn't yeah. depreciate yeah uh and so you know in the same way that cash is like this right um you know 
cash is fungible and bitcoins are fungible like this and their fungibility means that they are very difficult to trace what kind of things are people buying with bitcoin now uh everything that people are buying with money uh people buy houses with bitcoin people buy uh um a lot of uh people buy labor with bitcoin so a lot of people are paid in bitcoin a lot of people buy um savings in bitcoin and um there are a lot of uh a lot of international money transfers happen uh through bitcoin um without the the uh the risk of the exchange rate Without the risk of the exchange rate and also without exorbitant fees, you can transfer, um, you know, seven million dollars in wealth um, for something like five cents. Um, right. And have it be perfectly secure. Uh, so um, there there are actually like Twitter accounts you can follow. Like I think one's called like BTC Wales or something. And they they uh, track like, whoa, there was a really large. Uh, Bitcoin transaction in this block. It moved from this address to this address. Um, now, since Bitcoin is pseudonymous, right? You don't know who those addresses belong to, but you just know, like, wow, uh, there was a lot of money that changed hands. You know, when I watch the crime shows, they're always figuring out who did it by looking at an IP address and then going and tracking that down. The same thing doesn't happen here. How is this different from an IP address? Uh. Well, IP addresses are linked to physical devices, right? And so there's a ways to scramble your IP addresses. So uh, you could oh, yeah. uh, you could use um, at one of the services that makes you know your IP opaque um, because a Bitcoin address isn't tied to anything physical, right? Um, so most people probably aren't careful because they probably don't care if anyone associates their Bitcoin address with their IP address because they're not doing uh, things for which they want to be very careful for because they're buying things with Bitcoin that people buy with money regularly. And, you know, for the same reason, I don't worry that, you know, someone's going to find out via my IP address that I bought uh, Sri Raja from uh, um, Amazon today that, you know, most people aren't worried about people tracking their Bitcoin um, purchases that way. But it's certainly uh, possible to, um, and possible to in a way that it is impossible for a lot of other. Um, so it seems of like of moving well it seems like this would be a great place for drug dealers and arms dealers and uh, sex traffickers uh, to hang out and 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 trade Bitcoin for what's what's stopping the nefarious off of there and of course it the, is the a problem great there is for... who defines nefarious and if at some point in the future i'm a i am a domestic terrorist because i'm a christian who's pro-life uh, now i'm nefarious and because of somebody's definition but i, I mean, who, who keeps it clean uh the same people who keep uh cash purchases clean right um so it is a great way to uh settle drug deals using bitcoin um and um uh, there was one of the first first exchanges was uh, something called the silk road where people were buying drugs with bitcoin um now not, uh most people buy drugs uh, nobody buys drugs with the credit cards right people buy <laughs> drugs with cash <laughs> yeah. right 
Um, and Bitcoin is supposed to eventually function like you know a digital cash. And so it will be useful for those kinds of things too, which is making purchases that you don't want the authorities to know about. So uh, you will be able to buy um, illegal things with Bitcoin. And um, if we want to keep it clean, we will have to keep it clean by doing actual police work uh, following actual people in the real world instead of casting this net where we monitor everybody's financial um, transactions because we know that that net can be misused. Sure. Um, and if we redefine, uh, you know, reading the wrong kind of book as, you know, a terrorist activity. Yeah, well, yeah, because if, if I buy drugs from you with Bitcoin, all I've done is just satisfy the financial transaction. I've still got to get them to you. Yeah, which is where the capture takes place with the drug sniffing dog or or state. Yeah. OK, yeah, I see what you're saying. All right. Well, we're about to the end of what we normally uh, do for the podcast. That's 40 minutes. So I, I guess maybe we can take a, a, a pause here and, and Candace can say, uh, uh, you know, we, we thank you for listening or I'll say it. We thank you for listening. Uh, it's great that you're with us. Uh, we've got a link for the first night if you missed it. Uh, if you send us an email, we'll send you the link for the first night uh, so you can catch it while it's still fresh in your mind. Um, and then we're going to, so we're going to close off the podcast and then we're going to open it up for questions. I already had one, but um, some of the, some of the rest of you have probably got questions. You may be as confused as I am.